This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Anne Enright, author of Actress. A famous person doesn't know they're famous. That all comes from outside. A famous person knows that they want fruit or eggs for breakfast. That's what they know about themselves. They don't really live in the mirror. We'll be back with Anne Enright in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 300th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we are simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. No please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also very grateful. I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of first draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash first draft writers. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is the Irish writer Anne Enright, whose novel The Gathering won the 2007 Man Booker Prize, in addition to Irish Novel of the Year. She has published six novels, two short story collections, and one book of nonfiction. In addition to numerous literary prizes, Enright received the Irish Pen Award for Outstanding Contribution to Irish Literature. She lives in Dublin. 
Her latest novel, Actress, centers on theater legend Catherine O'Dell, who comes of age in London, Ireland, and then New York and Hollywood in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Odell moves between the stage and the big screen, and while fame and relationships come and go, her bond with her daughter Nora is the basis for the narrative style of the book. Nora is telling Catherine's story as an adult looking back on their lives and discovering who her mother Catherine Odell really was to her daughter, her friends, and co-workers. Throughout the novel, Nora delves into long-kept secrets and long-boiling resentments. Both Nora and Catherine have dealt with difficult sexual histories, both were assaulted and silenced, and both search for the path to recovery. The novel actress is as much about how fame can hold people up as a fantasy, the same way those close to a famous person cannot always detect the difference between fiction and reality. We began the discussion with Anne Enright sharing her relationship with the theatre. Um, well, I've been trying to write about the theatre, thinking about writing about the theatre forever, because when I was a student in my early 20s, I was involved in student theatre and then briefly in professional theatre in Dublin. And it was a very exciting place to be in, um, and but full of a kind of glamour that didn't finally kind of capture me. I, I, it's a really tough life, um, and I wanted to represent that too. Anyway, it's hard to put the theatre into a book because the book is a fiction, and the theatre is also full of fictions. It took me a, it took me a while, but every time I finished a book, I said, "Oh, I'll, I'll write my theatre book now," <laughs> and then I finally did. Do you think there's something similar that happens in your mind between acting? And writing, and and I'm thinking about kind of embodiment, maybe, and empathy for characters. Yeah, embodiment is a good word. Um, that you can be either visited or inhabited by presences. Now, there is a difference between being visited and being inhabited, really, isn't there? I do remember when I was writing The Gathering that I, uh, um, a very strange moment of being annoyed with my husband for something it was like when you wake up from a dream and you think the person who is, you know, killed somebody else actually did for two minutes, you know, and I, I, so it was a dream emotion that I had about him. And then I realized, oh, no, 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 that's not, that's not me. That's my narrator. <laughs> I'm still carrying the emotional fiction and the emotional residue of that narrator. So, yes, you do, you do dream them. You do dream them one way or the other. And so I think you were in New York and you picked up a book about Andy Warhol, a woman who shot Andy Warhol that kind of was the beginning of Catherine. Can you talk about Catherine O'Dell? I was in Brooklyn and I was thinking about Siobhan McKenna, who was one of the many Irish people who came over to New York in the 1950s in this kind of glamorous uh, so, some, somewhere between, you know, lovely old Ireland and uh, wonderful, monumental, poetic Ireland um, that would you'd see on the stage. So I was looking at Siobhan McKenna on Broadway and the New Yorker was reporting about her in 1955 um, and studying that sort of idly, just I'm interested in that, I thought. And then I, 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 but I couldn't put Siobhan McKenna in a book. I thought I can't have this woman in a plaid shawl staring out to sea this isn't enough for me to make a book out of and I went around to a bookshop around the corner and I picked up a book about Valerie Salamis who shot Andy Warhol and I thought why can't, why can't why am I not writing this this is this is now this is a contemporary thing to write about 
it's um, and suddenly I thought, well, if I can make Catherine O'Dell shoot somebody, there I am. I'm somewhere between the nostalgia for old Ireland and the very kind of interesting and wrong-headed. Uh, sometimes you know it's wrong. It's wrong to shoot people. Clearly, wrong-headed outrage uh, of women in the in the uh, movie industry. And so the way you told this story, it's through the eyes of Catherine O'Dell, the star's daughter. So Catherine O'Dell, her parents were were in the theater in England, and she moved between England and London. And she came of age where they were going to small towns to do theater. And then she kind of had this moment where she just became a star, where she was born and she went to Hollywood and she came back to England after that. So basically, we, we watch her trajectory, and it's, um, you know, we kind of end. She dies in 1986, so it's really 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s that we see Catherine's life, and it's told through her daughter's point of view. So how did you alight on the daughter's point of view? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I, I should look up my very early files and to see what that was. But I don't want to disturb the silt of my imagination that's lying very happily somewhere on the bed of that river. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I don't know. I mean, I, I have no idea. And, and I don't mean to be defensive about that, but I built this, I built a life for Catherine O'Dell. I built a, a biography for her at the by the end of the book. I was nearly convinced that she was real. I had a great amount of fun with that kind of, those various kind of pieces of guff and um, cliche that are said about stars, including a star is born, not made. Um, uh, and I, I, I showed her moving through a series of what might be called second-rate fictions, usually written by men. And I had an enormous, too much fun writing out those movies and plays that she starred in the 40s and 50s. I was hugely interested in her mongrel and wandering life. She is neither English nor Irish. She's born in London. Her parents moved to uh, move around Ireland. They were travelling players. I love that feeling of uh, of a wandering group who are outside of society and out and who 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 travel across national boundaries. And it started very early in the history of the Irish state, and there was no real clear distinction between the theatre of London and the theatre of Dublin, and and from there into the provinces. These people moved wherever wherever Shakespeare was played, basically, um, and uh, uh, and so they their I I I like their freedom, and I like their refusal to settle into one nas- nationality or another, even as they were espousing great national myths about, for example, Irishness um, um, and its poetic, lyrical, rebellious, romantic self. Um, These all attracted me hugely. However, I think perhaps I, I wanted to write from the child's point of view rather than from the famous person's point of view because a famous person doesn't know they're famous. That all comes from outside. A famous person knows that they want fruit or eggs for breakfast. That's what they know about themselves. They don't really live in the mirror. 
or if they do live in the mirror, as a number of fictions have shown us over the centuries, that gets quite problematic. So I needed I needed this star to be seen from the outside because it is one of the great paradoxes of stardom that 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 the star cannot know herself as as that as you know. The star knows themselves as someone who's got a sore toe and um, and and is waiting for a car that hasn't arrived. That's <laughs> that's their life, if you know what I mean. So I wanted to see that gla- that 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 I wanted to show how we project on the screen of others and elevate them or not. And and a daughter was a perfect vehicle for that because at the age of you know eighteen months or two years old, we absolutely adore our our parents our mothers in particular and they are to us everything glamorous and all the rest of it so the parent child dynamic worked for that kind of theme i think i just thought about a little bit about distance and how even though her daughter was probably the closest person in the world to her there's still always a distance when you're looking at stars and and trying to make sense of the star and the person and and in some ways, that's what acting does, too. It's like it keeps your real person at a distance. Yeah, well, that question, what is she really like? What is she really like? Oh, she's just like she, whatever she is. Uh, but it's a question that we might ask of anyone. Um, and the fact that it's, it's asked of people who move through different personas or move through different characters and perhaps have another extra character which is the character of the star i mean they act that out also nora who is the the daughter in the book sees her mother catherine going out for the day and as she's passing the mirror in the hall she does a thing she turns herself into her her outside self she you know she lifts her chin and and puts her shoulders back and meets herself eye to eye and then she walks out the door and it's famous all day and i think we know that difference between the interior and the exterior self we all know what it's like to put a face on or to you know to go out and greet the day and to greet the the gaze of others um it's it is a kind of bangled version of what we all know in our own lives of of how 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 we present to the world and what qualities did you want nor to have you know as you as you modulated her as the narrator and also brought in her own story what was important for you for the novel and for her agency you know both as as the narrator and it being true to the kid of a, a star the uk version of the book has carrie fisher a photograph of carrie fisher as a child looking out out from the wings at debbie reynolds um, and Debbie Reynolds is in a glittering dress, and Carrie Fisher is a little child sitting on a stool with a pudding bowl haircut and a matinee coat, and lovely little Mary Jane shoes, and she's gazing out from the darkness at her mother on stage, and her mother has her hands uplifted to the crowd. And it took me a long time to describe that moment somehow in the book. It was a, a piece of a piece of uh, an image that I used to help the writing, and and I thought, well. Nora looking out at her mother on stage feels so lucky and so alone. And I, I was in, intrigued about that moment of glamour, which is our beauty, where we see the adored mother, the adored object, as a beautiful or perhaps 
not perhaps a shabby or, or, or uh, you know, how embarrassed teenagers are about their parents. We see them in the world and we're mortified. But at, at an earlier age, we see them and they're beautiful. And once you see, and you know, this the, the loved object, you are also losing them somehow and you're losing them to the gaze of others. And that moment is... It's just so poignant and a tiny bit camp. There's a tiny edge of camp to it, theatrical camp. And I I just loved all of that. So early on in the book, one of the early lines, and and we've learned just on a big view, we don't go into it in, in as much detail, but we have the overarching view that we know that Catherine kind of rose and fell and was very famous and then wasn't. But uh, Nora says, my mother was a great fake. And that line really stuck with me throughout the whole rest of the book, thinking about it. Yeah, she's a glorious fake. I mean, fake is a really, you know, fake is a really moral word. And people get very moral about reality and fiction and, and making things up. And I'm not in the slightest bit moral about it. I do it all day. And I, <laughs> and I, and I, and, and I don't think it's a, a bad thing to do. Um, so she was a, a great and glorious fake might be, might be um, a better way of putting it. There is a scene where, She's a child, um, and they're sitting in a public in in a little square owned by the residents of this place called Dartmouth Square, and there are houses on four sides of this little square. They go into the park to have their picnic, and 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 Catherine O'Dell is loves or doesn't mind being overseen by the windows of the houses on four sides, and 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 there is her daughter playing at being at a picnic, pouring invisible tea for her her dollies and her teddies. Um, but at one stage she says she's she she does she didn't need to pretend to be my mother as well as being my mother. That would be like double cream. So there is a slight unease with with Nora that her mother is acting for the world, the role of domestic goddess among other things. Um but it's not because she doubts the core of it. She says it would be like double cream, which is a kind of cream you get in the UK. And she, 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 she is her mother already. And, 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 and Nora never doubts that. She never thinks that there's an emptiness at the heart of it all. She is never abandoned or desolate in the true sense of the word because she holds the tenderness that her mother has for her in, in, in with with some ease. She's able to be loved. So it's not, despite nor, but despite Catherine's, you know, uh, expected disappointments and ravings. It's not a book about a cold-hearted mother. It's a book about um, a mother who who is who is damaged by the world. And I, and I think the word fake, we, as a society, you know, we're so enamored and obsessed with fame and stardom, and we want to know who these people really are. And then if we find out that maybe a marriage they had is fake or something that appears in, in a tabloid isn't real, we're so disappointed, but their whole life is they are actors. They they are yeah. fake well, you know, it's one of the accusations that uh, that, that teenagers um, sling at each other as well um, when issues of sincerity um, arise in relationships. She's such a fake is a thing that girls can say about another girl um, w- without blinking. Um, 
and oh, it's interesting who we accuse of being fake and when and, and, and how how that disappointment registers with us, that it's not real. Um, it's somehow constructed by us or by them, whoever they are. I, I, you know, I, I, I grew up with ideas of authenticity and Irishness that I find completely manufactured and fake. So that didn't, you know, I, 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 you'd be looking at posters of Irish girls putting, you know, leading donkeys <laughs> along cliff edges with their lovely red hair. And that was a complete fake. And it was a fake that was marketed as a true and authentic and lovely thing. So um, I'm not all that bothered at this stage about words like fake. I, I, I'm quite interested in them. I, it, it also has to be said that the, the lives of actors as made by the Hollywood studio system were were entirely fake and catherine catherine's marriage is a is a fake there all those all those stories are all those pictures that particularly Joan Crawford and her daughter who wrote Mommy Dearest there were endless pictures of women in gingham aprons you know giving um trifle and custard to happy children with golden curls that was that was an endless image from Hollywood was that these female stars were were put uh, with children as props and accessories to show that they were in some way harmless really that they were actually had a lovely domestic life which in John Crawford's case couldn't have been further from the truth it was interesting because when Catherine was at the height of her talent and career in Hollywood. She was uh, working with a co-star named Philip Greenfield that she ended up marrying, but there was no agency in her life. It was like her life was so orchestrated when she had the most to give and, and was at the most maybe actualized for what she had. It seemed like she had the least amount of power. She had very little power in, in any of, she was protected to an extent by the fact that her father was also in the business um, and you find those women in the theatre and, and film, women, uh, the women who work there, found their protections in one or other male alliance. Um, be, albeit, you know, an agent, producer, it didn't always go right there, of course, but a husband, a father, uh, the fact that they were in the family. All, all that, and, and you see that still in Hollywood, that it, it works by families. Somebody like Gwyneth Paltrow would be in a in a in a film family, she would be protected by Brad Pitt against Harvey Weinstein. That she that, that it works like a little society, and that women find alliances that they're not just kind of completely abused. Um, and the system, as we know, is open to great abuse and predation. And those 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 kind of lines and alliances were 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 made in in the early days of Hollywood too. There's a funny thing they say about uh, the wars of the medieval times. There's a historian, I think called Barbara Tuchman, who said, these kings and queens were teenagers, and that is why they started wars, and that is why they behaved the way they did. Um, people died very, very early and uh, in, in those days. And the same could be said of the stars of Hollywood, because you were at your prime at an incredibly young age, before the wrinkles set in, in the 50s and 60s. Catherine O'Dell was in her early 20s when she was in Hollywood, and if she displayed a lack of agency in her choice of uh, films, or her, her choice of husband, or where she lived, or any of those other things, it's partly because she was working all the time, as they did, 
uh, and she was used by the system and supported by the system. But also, she was a she was what we would call a teenager, basically a child. You know, nearly she was in her early adulthood. So by the time she knew what was happening, it was gone. I mean, I don't know if it's a sorrow of the book or not. The the book is quite interested in 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 whether fame is is worth it, and 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 what Catherine O'Dell finds solace in is her craft as an actress, and she makes the distinction between being a star and being an actress. Um, and so once her Hollywood career declines or is over, she turns to the great plays and and goes back to the stage, and she works there more or less happily for, for you know, although the, the great flame of her stardom is over. It's hard to describe that to people who are enthralled to stardom, that there is actually more satisfaction to be gained out of from work. Yeah, you have an incredible description of that on page 90 that I wanted to ask you about. It's It's a short paragraph, and it's talking about her acting. And you write, it was exhausting. We all knew it. It took everything she had, this business of getting into character and then being in character and then painfully coming out of character. It was such a long journey back to the real world. No one knew why it should be so tiring or what the true alchemy of it was, but it was the difference between a real performance and just going through the motions. It was the difference between losing the audience and having them in the palm of your hand. I rewrote it several times, many, many times. The difference between triumph and disaster. You know, the, the theatre, the stage, and how we invest and how we how our boundaries dissolve when we're watching a performance is really both challenging and interesting to describe. And in order for those boundaries to dissolve, we have to return to some more primitive or more early kind of state, perhaps. And that return is affected with some difficulty in that description is affected with some difficulty by Catherine O'Dell. There are a number of different models of describing how actors feel when they're acting. Um, Catherine O'Dell belongs to an old-fashioned melodramatic tradition in which, you know, uh, she she grew up on Shakespeare and the melodrama. So the articulation, the words and the lines are highly technical. It's all it's all virtuoso, all, all all technical. It's not method acting. She doesn't do method acting. But behind this uh, virtuosity is a real reach into you know the depths of the self to find the emotions that that will that will that will move the language forward. And and in that in that sense is not unlike writing when writing is working the whole engine of of the self is is working towards this articulation and 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 it is exhausting it is exhausting i suppose because those those emotions that are being accessed are often tragic or difficult emotions but i do think that in the theater in the darkness of the theater it's like we're all involved in the same grand and perhaps narcissistic fiction and in order to enter the circumference of the actor's narcissism, we, uh, you know, something has to happen. I mean, they call it magic or alchemy or something, but I, I, I think it is an unbounded sense of self. We, we give our, do we give? We dissolve. I don't know. We reach. We are. We're with the actor in an astonishing way. It's not. It's not analysed very well in anything I've 
read how the audience feels when they're when they're when they're we're in the in a state of belief. It must be interesting for you to have started off as an actor and moved into writing because I would think it's not unlike that paragraph when you write that you're kind of dissolving yourself into what you're writing and it takes probably a little bit to get in and it takes a little bit to get out but your readers are then they're not watching you while this is happening or watching while the story is unfolding they're in their homes or on the trains or in their beds yeah and if you're lucky they're also in the fiction as they read i suppose yeah do you, do you feel um, anything like those feelings when you write yeah sometimes sometimes i'm a bit wrung out by it all yeah I I write more or less on a daily basis and, you know, I'm tinkering with the sentences and I'm doing practical things with with commas and full stops and I'm looking for a better word. And when you lapse into that kind of state of flow where you don't really know where one word begs another and you don't really know what's coming or, you know, it's kind of lovely. But um, and and much fussed about by by creative artists but uh, uh, I, I don't really like I'm touching wood here Mitzi I don't want to talk about it too much but I, I, it isn't a, it isn't a real problem for me to, to get there as they say um, because I've been doing it for so long and I've I, and I've been doing it with you know through Storm and <laughs> through mortgages and children and all the all the things that life can throw at you I have the kind of the space at the desk which is always problematic but mine in some way there was so much too about the culture you know there's so much about maybe the difference between ireland and america and in the 70s especially the ira in england and the and the division between yeah. the two um it seemed like there was also some research involved yeah i i don't sort of bury myself in libraries but I do you know my life is full of research and interest and curiosity and um, I was very interested throughout the book in, in the difference between fantasy life and real life so the difference between fiction and reality um, and Catherine O'Dell's involvement in fictions as she moves through one or other on the stage or in you know, on the screen or in her kitchen or walking down the street she engages in a kind of fiction of nationalism um, that involves sympathy for and working for the funding machine of the IRA in Ireland, who were at that, in the 1970s um, conducting a, a bombing campaign in, in in the north of Ireland and in London. Um, and Nora is really fierce about the difference between romanticising a nation or a nationality and killing people. She's really, really strong on that. <laughs> and it seems a very obvious thing to say. But we look at how nationalities, which or a sense of nationality, is made out of various fictions about what, for example, Irish people are. Um, and I was reared to believe that Irish women were lovely. Someone this morning at breakfast said that Irish women are lucky. Yeah, could I could I give her some of my Irish luck? And I said, well, you know, a lot of Irish women weren't that lucky. <laughs> um, and the reality is somehow quite different. So those aspirational myths that every state enjoys and every tribe celebrates are dangerous fictions because they lead to effects in the real world 
that are not romantic or aspirational, but are completely bloody and irreparable and true. And so um, Nora is kind of furious with her mother for getting involved in all of that kind of cliche. Thank you very much, because people are so uh, ruinously hurt by it. Um, and I hadn't really, I hadn't ventured into the world of politics, certainly not into violence. There's so much violence in books. The enormous people, a number of people get slaughtered in books one way or the other. I wonder, I wonder actually what the crime statistics are. There are more people killed in fiction than there are in on the streets. Probably not, but anyway. But they're somehow killed for fun in fiction. Um, and... Nora, as a writer, is very keen to say uh, that that there's nothing funny about it, no, nothing fun about it. Is there any fiction right now coming out of Ireland that you think that we, as Americans, should be tuning into? Yeah, the, the, an amazing thing has been happening in the last five, ten, five years, maybe, in Irish, uh, the work of Irish women writers, in that um, the society. There's a kind of golden moment uh, in, in 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 that the urgency of the things that have to be said are met with a, a kind of readership that's able to hear them. Um, and there are some themes that are general. You know, people might Irish women writers are writing more clearly about the body, perhaps than um, than young American writers that I'm looking at. Um, but if you look at Anna Burns or Ema McBride, Sally Rooney, um, Lisa McInerney, these are terrific voices. They're all incredibly different from each other. And I think that's the sign of a, a really true writer is that they're, they they have an Irish accent, but it's almost like they're speaking their own made-up language, you know, that, they've, they, that their relationship with language is so particular. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, I can. There is an amazing passage at the beginning of In the Skin of a Lion by Michael Ondaatje. Michael Ondaatje wrote The English Patient, uh, is his more... Uh, famous book. But there's an amazing passage at the beginning of In the Skin of a Lion where, um, uh, uh, which describes a worker building a bridge in the darkness. Um, and he swings with great ease. He's he, from, from, from scaffolding to scaffolding. He's, he's, he's like an aerialist. He's like a trapeze artist as he's working the rivets and the, uh, and the welding of this great bridge in, in Canada, in Toronto. Um, and for some reason, a nun walks to the end of the unfinished bridge and is blown off the edge. And this worker swings out and catches her as she plummets down into the ravine that the bridge is is crossing. It is the most extraordinary passage because this miracle is not questioned. It's written in in such... I mean, it's all about the miracle of catching this falling nun. Um, and it stayed with me for a very long time. I kind of thought, how did he, how did he do that? And why did he do that? And how come it has such an amazing effect on the reader? We don't even blink. We just go, oh, my God, he's caught her. So there's a, you know, a great um, combination of vertigo and delight and ease um, in that passage that puzzled me for a long time. It's written in a, a kind of heroic present tense. Um that makes it somehow believable. 
is the best start to a novel that I can think of. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. It's the birth of Catherine Adele. On the evening of 23rd of April, her father, Menton Fitzmaurice, was on stage in dailies at theatre off Leicester Square. There had been a twinge, a pain or two. Fitz mentioned this to a neighbour on the way to the station, but there was no sense of urgency. And by the time the woman decided to check in her, my grandmother was crowning on the landing. This is what I was always told, that the front door was left open, a group of children gathered outside, while my grandmother belly up, clung on to a spindle of the banister, making and suppressing a deep animal noise. I see her like an illustration of the day, boot heels jutting and the hat on her head, its absurd feather broken at an angle, all askew. Her skirts are in disarray in this, the illustrated version of the tale. So whatever there is of water or blood is not on view, nor is my mother's importunate head, the squeezed cone of her skull, obliging its way through parting flesh as my grandmother heaves or bumps down a step or two, the other hand flailing backwards while the children stand solemn-eyed at the front gate below. Now, the difficulty in that passage was the mixture of an Edwardian illustration and then the very visceral, very... uh, Animal is one word, uh, flesh is another word, the very sort of amazing reality of, of giving birth on the stairs. I knew a woman who gave birth on the stairs and her her, her child was outside at the front door trying to flag down a passing doctor <laughs> and she gave birth on the stairs and she said, it was fine. She was fine. She hung on to the banisters. Where do you write? I write anywhere. I write on the page. I write on my computer when it isn't dead, which it currently is. Uh, it's a slight worry. But no, I, I write wherever I need to. Um, A lot of people get fussed about where they are, and it's just another bit of fuss. Children broke me of all that kind of fuss. You don't have a place. You just have to write where you are. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't. That is a real problem in my life. I find it very hard to get away from writing. And, you know, taking a bath is possibly as good as it gets I I, no, I I go for a walk I walk the dog but that usually is to clear my head so I can go back and write some more sadly I spend an amount of time going on the internet to get away from writing and as a, a as a, a, a way of managing your time that is as we know disastrous who do you show your work to first to get feedback at the end, if I have written something that I'm happy with, I, I, I annoy my husband and he comes, but he's usually there. But I, I go up and I say, listen to this. And he says, no. I say, no, listen to this. This is a good bit, I say. How have you dealt with rejection? I have been blessed with very little rejection in my writing life. I don't know why that is. I have, I, 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 my first short stories were published. I have dealt with failure, however. I have dealt with not being able to finish a book. I've dealt with, um, you know, I've dealt with failure at the desk or creative failure. But any time I've put things out into the world, they have been accepted. What do you do when you feel like you failed at the desk? Do you, like, jump in the cold water? How do you deal? Uh, (laughs) When I feel, (laughs) well, you know, I just 
keep chipping away. And if I, I mean, I, I can't, I, I don't want to, I don't want to even try and remember who it was like 20, 30 years ago when I was failing at the desk. But if I'm failing at the desk now, I just turn to another page and start working on that instead. And I used to actually, a good technique was to have two or three things on the go. So you've always, and I would fail to do the most urgent thing and I would go back to do my book instead. That was good. That's a good technique. So you're failing at doing something you don't need to do. <laughs> or you think you need to do it, but actually you don't. You need to do your, you need to do your book. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word is tilt. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mitzi. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Anne Enright, author of Actress. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Dana Spiata, who explores 1980s Los Angeles through the eyes of two female filmmakers in her novel, Innocence and Others. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Michelle Bowdler, Ursula Hagee, and R.L. Mazes. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.